Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hi, everyone. It's a whole new era of the podcast because on our Patreon last week, we did our 200th episode where we returned to Roger and me. I'm saying this partly to plug the Patreon, which we don't always do on the free episodes. But this is episode 201. You know, it's a whole brave new world. Really exciting, isn't it? You know, there's a new presidential administration, a whole new 100-episode terrain of the podcast. (laughs) And in Ontario, uh, we're going into a state of emergency over uh, (laughs) over COVID. Whole new measures are being introduced. I believe they're closing schools. So all of these things are very exciting. You know, just <laughs> so it's a whole new it's a whole new year, whole new <laughs> podcast. Um, well, on the on the lockdown, I was just reading about that. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I suspect a lot of our American listeners in particular won't realize how kind of strict things are here. I was talking to a friend in New Zealand recently. You can guess which one. But uh, he says life is just completely normal there. Like he can go to movies, concerts, things like that. I'm not sure what, you know, the kind of impression of uh, the state of things in Canada is uh, down south or, or indeed elsewhere. But uh, in Ontario, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, although I was just reading about the new lockdown measures and I guess they've refrained from doing a curfew. But uh, what are they calling it? Like a stay at home order? That sounds more heavy handed than a curfew. But when I was looking over it, it says, you know, you can you can go out for medical appointments, uh, groceries for exercise. Uh, you can't gather in groups of uh, big, bigger than five. And I don't know, there's, I think, some changes to, you know, certain stores have to close at eight uh, by 8 p.m. and they can't open till seven. Uh, groups bigger than five. Is that indoors or outdoors? Uh, outdoors. I mean, I, I don't think you've been able to gather indoors in, in a group that size for, for quite a long time, mm-hmm. unless unless you've been maintaining a bubble. And I don't know how it really applies there. But reading all this stuff, I kind of thought... I, I don't think it's going to change anything, certainly about my behavior. I don't know. Well, those weekly orgy nights I've been hosting are going to have to be delayed till at least March. <laughs> I'm a little sad about that. But like, who's going out? Why would why would you go outside for any other reason but groceries and exercise? I mean, there's there's nothing open. It's uh, wet. It's freezing. It's dark. Uh, I'm not sure this changes much, but it really does suck. The vaccine rollout has also been pretty slow. So we're currently on course to have everyone vaccinated in about 10 years, uh, which which isn't particularly encouraging. Although I did see earlier today, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, our Lord and Savior was saying that uh, by September, we're, we're on track to have all the vaccinations done by then. This isn't uh, by any means the biggest news of the week, but I saw that the new James Bond movie has been delayed again. It was supposed to open first of Easter weekend last year, 2020. Then it was delayed to November. Then it was delayed to Easter weekend 2021. And now it's going to be delayed again to November of 2021. So this will be the fourth release date for this movie. And it kind of feels like this is one of those things that may always be with us. You know, as the world continues to deteriorate, the new James Bond movie will be forever, like just tantalizingly on the horizon. Well, it's like there's always going to be a cohort, like we're always going to be one cohort of movies behind. It's like when in in Ontario, they got rid of grade 13 and then there was like a double cohort because they're not going to be able to just have twice as many movies in theaters, right? The theaters can only accommodate so much. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, I thought Bond, the Bond film was going to be one of those ones released, like, for streaming. It was in the conversation. It was uh, in the conversation. But it it's not going to be released in streaming because MGM slash Sony were trying to sell it to a streaming service for $600 million. 
which is how much they need to like break even on the movie. Possibly more than the budget of the film. Well, when you think about it, a movie like that, what it costs to make and market, and this is three scuttled release dates now. So they've marketed the movie around three different release dates. That adds up. It probably has cost at least $500 million. So now it's at the point where they can't sell it to a streaming service because even Netflix isn't going to pay that much money for it. They just have to keep sitting on it. <laughs> I feel like we, we have almost every week now, we have a version of the like catching, you know, the, this is our, our focus on film uh, section of the podcast. <laughs> but I, I just have to ask you, I mean, how many of these movies are are you actually excited about seeing? Because I feel like it's probably not that many, right? I think I can count it on one hand. I'm excited to see Top Gun 2 uh, <laughs> because I, ju- I just love Tom. And I want to see him fly the plane. And I'm also excited for Coming to America 2 because I want to see I want to see Eddie back in action. And forgive me, what's what's coming to America too? Well, that's the sequel to the Eddie Murphy classic from the 1980s. I'm not I'm not familiar with it. Really? Oh man, the the listeners are going to be sending you angry letters for this because that movie is a beloved. I don't even really like Coming to America, but I want to see Eddie back in action. And I think the common denominator of all these movies that I'm looking forward to, James Bond, Eddie Murphy, Tom Cruise, these are things that remind me of happier times in my life. 20 years ago, back before everything turned to shit. So you're becoming a nostalgia guy. You're going to be the king of reboots from now on. That's right. I'm the nostalgia critic. I remember it so you don't have to. (laughs) The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. Speaking of angry feedback, our listeners really don't miss a trick because on the uh, on the Patreon episode last week, the, the Roger and Me Revisited episode, I flippantly referred to Epicurus as a pre-Socratic philosopher, which of course uh, he isn't. And uh, people caught that one. So uh, they, they put the fear of God in me now. And this is Luke's last week on the podcast as a result. <laughs> we do not tolerate mistakes like that on Michael and us. Yeah, I was hoping the union would back me here. But uh, <laughs> but alas, like the UAW in Flint in the late 1980s, they're selling out the workers. But we recognize that you are irreplaceable. We're not going to get another host. So it's just going to become the Will Show from now on. <laughs> yeah, from, from now on under uh, Proposition 22, I'm actually I'm, I'm going to be on the show, but I'm going to be an, an independent contractor, so I'm going to <laughs> lose all my benefits and and the paid sick leave I was getting courtesy of Michael and us LLC. Anyway, I don't know how to segue into this, but something that's kind of been on my mind, that well, really since November, since the election, but I mean, particularly the last few weeks in the wake of Donald Trump's ban from Twitter, obviously, but I don't know if you saw, they also banned him from Spotify, Pinterest, so uh, no more uh, problematic mood boards for Donald Trump. What about OnlyFans? Is he still on there? I don't think he was on there, but now that you mention it, is he going to be the next celebrity to get an OnlyFans account and then like, you know, not be showing enough skin, and, and there, but it's, it's going to crack crash the whole platform. I'm only on there for the articles. But you know, something I was wondering about uh, after the election, which I think is a genuinely open question at this point, no one can can definitively answer is to what extent is Donald Trump still going to be with us after Biden's inauguration? I mean, I know it feels the Trump era feels, you know, we're feeling all kinds of things right now. Uh, The, you know, relief, uh, because the Trump era is nearly over. You know, I think everyone regardless of, you know, political persuasion, unless you're full MAGA is, you know, probably feeling a version of that. You know, there's uh, obviously a lot of shock and anxiety in the wake of last week's events. 
But I, I still think even without all of Trump's, you know, ban from uh, all these social media platforms, it was always going to be an open question, you know, the extent to which he persisted as a figure commanding daily attention. You know, something my colleague Seth Ackerman speculated about after the election was that, you know, there isn't really a precedent here for like, when when can you think of a ex-president who has continued to remain kind of the preeminent figure in their party, you know, after their departure from office? Uh, you could say Barack Obama uh, with the Democrats, and to some extent that's true, but Barack Obama just kind of pops in and out, right? You know, I would argue his influence is much more a sort of residual thing. It's a more abstract kind of influence. When people fear that Donald Trump is going to kind of stick around, that's not really what they mean, right? They mean that he's going to stick around... Uh, He's going to be in our face in the way that he has uh, when he's been president. And I think it was always an open question whether he was going to linger and in what way, you know, if he did kind of linger, what form that would take. I mean, when everyone thought Trump was going to lose in 2016, there was all that speculation that he was going to start a channel or something. And I suppose he could just do that. And, you know, the irony of that would be, of course, if Donald Trump starts some kind of channel and enough people watch it, whatever's on there will end up being news anyway. And then, you know, media will report on it just as if it was on Twitter and, and the whole thing will continue. But now that Trump is banned from these platforms, and obviously there's a case to be made that th- these platforms kind of are the source of his power, at least when it comes to, inf- you know, maybe not his political power, but his power to kind of uh, hold people's attention and influence the news cycle on a daily basis. You really do have to wonder what happens to Donald Trump's presence in kind of, you know, in the daily public imagination. And relatedly, what happens to the the whole ecosystem, the whole kind of cultural ecosystem and all of the profits that are tied up in, you know, lampooning Donald Trump, resisting Donald Trump. You know, what happens to all the reply guys who've reply guide their way to 400,000 Twitter followers just by saying, how dare you, sir, a million times? What happens to all the late night comedy stuff? Like, I'm just imagining on the day of uh, Biden's inauguration, like a news clip of an SNL comedian weeping outside, you know, the, the comedy factory as it's closing <laughs> and just going like, but when my when my great grandfather Mario SNL came to this country 100 years ago, he thought there was always going to be Donald Trump. You know, and what happens to these people when this guy disappears? Because it's not just about Trump's Twitter feed. There's, there's a whole ecosystem that officially opposes Donald Trump that is totally symbiotic with him being just this daily and unavoidable presence not daily like hourly unavoidable presence in everyone's life i mean until a couple days ago i would have assumed that the democratic party itself was part of that ecosystem biden again spoke this week to the need for a strong republican party you know a strong and principled (laughs) republican party and there does seem to be a concerted bipartisan effort right now to divest trumpism from the republican party The siege on the Capitol has given institutional conservatism kind of a convenient pretense to uh, flush all this out of its system. Well, as has the fact that he's leaving office, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why these these tech platforms can do this is because also he's just, he's about to he's about to be gone anyway. And yet, I don't see how that doesn't backfire for the Democratic Party. I mean, all of these efforts to rehabilitate the Republican brand and to continue to paint Trumpism as an aberrant phenomenon, what does that mean in four years? I mean, it, it would seem to me that Trump, for the Democrats, could be a very convenient ploy to keep their left flank in line. If Trump remains a daily presence in public life, he can be a daily reminder that this is the kind of thing that we have to unite against. But if he's not there, like if he is effectively banned and, I don't know, 
Tom Cotton becomes the face of the Republican Party. I don't know. I think that's a genuine branding problem for the Democrats. I mean, this is where some of the kind of renewed calls for, you know, domestic terrorism laws and things like that, you know, may come in handy. And I think it's one of the reasons why they're sinister is because, you know, maybe you can't keep this ecosystem going with Donald Trump in relation to Donald Trump. But I mean, maybe you can, uh, you know, there was that either current or former Democratic lawmaker who has a background in the CIA who was interviewed on MSNBC last week. I'm forgetting, uh, forgetting her name. And she was saying, sure, we face threats from Russia and China, but I mean, our real threats are within, you know, their polarization and extremism and things like that. And it could be that those things, which are also in various respects real, but are nonetheless, you know, potential tools the Democrats can use to discipline their base and kind of keep the focus away from all the other stuff they're doing or not doing. You know, extremism, polarization, online misinformation, you know, that kind of stuff could be what they try to replace Trumpism and and its current function with. It's like the war on terror. Right. Well, I mean, I can't remember who pointed this out, but you can see efforts uh, already. You know, there was a a major, at least one major magazine uh, had a piece in the past week that's, you know, said this is comparable to 9-11. And, you know, with all that stuff about the sacred hallowed space of the Capitol, you know, that being the kind of central problem here, not not the political objectives or beliefs of the people involved, but just the the desecration. You know, there's all this weird religious language around mm-hmm. this stuff. The desecration of this place where people gather to protect, you know, oil companies from litigation and and <laughs> and you know cut taxes for billionaires. I don't know. All of this is purely speculative. On the Republican side, you know, I think, you know, the Republicans have always been uniquely good at negotiating between their kind of institutional wing and, and their base. You're right that the events of the past week have given them a sort of escape rope from some of this stuff. They've finally been able to divest themselves from, you know, to some extent or are beginning to from the figure of Donald Trump. But over and over again, we've seen how these kind of uh, waves within the Republican base are often absorbed into the institutional wing, you know, and then kind of persist until, you know, the next wave devours them. So, I mean, a whole bunch of new blood came in with the Tea Party wave in 2010. And, then, you know, by a few years later, some of those people were actually the, the people that the Trumpism was targeting and was taking on. So, I, I you know, obviously, we, we can only speculate about what form, you know, that process might take again. But uh, I don't have a hard time imagining it happening, you know, particularly since there have already been efforts by some Republicans to kind of channel Trump while, you know, divesting it of some of the, you know, aesthetic qualities that people find upsetting and offensive. So, I mean, obviously, he really stepped on it last week. And I think he's an incredibly overrated figure. But, you know, Josh Hawley is a prominent example of that. Uh, who knows whether his kind of association with what happened last week will affect his uh, his future prospects. But I really don't think it's going to be that difficult. Just uh, before we started recording, the news broke that former Republican governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, is going to be facing charges of some kind. I, I think there's uh, still some details to come out here for his uh, his role in the Flint water crisis. You know, a lot of people have probably forgotten this. There are so many things to be outraged about and have been for the past few months, if not the past few years. But uh, Rick Snyder endorsed Joe Biden, right? And the Biden campaign, not only did that happen, but the Biden campaign touted his endorsement. I mean, the bar for being a a respectable, you know, upright, non-Trumpian Republican is incredibly low. You can have a, a heinous record on all kinds of things. You can have a appalling history of public statements and votes, whatever. Uh, and I think as long as you eschew kind of Trump's more like carnivalesque qualities, uh, that's fine to a lot of people. I guess the challenge is figuring out how to, you know, since the base loves the loves that stuff, you know, how do you kind of triangulate between those two poles? I don't have I don't have that part of time imagining uh, somebody pulling it off. This isn't related to any of that, but uh, there was something I wanted to bring up on last week's episode and, and didn't have an opportunity. Uh, I think 
uh, many years ago on the show, you know, a few a few seasons back when we were still uh, uh, fresh faced podcasters and content creators. I think I talked about my history uh, kind of in the early 2000s in the blogosphere, uh, particularly I spent a lot of time on conservative blogs, right wing U.S. blogs. Uh, I would try to own conservatives. I would stand for the honor of Michael Moore, who, of course, was one of their big bogeymen at the time. A lot of the blogs I visited uh, were, you know, kind of hyperlinked on that page, morewatch.com. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. I, I remember morewatch.com. <laughs> I think it came up almost every week in the early episodes of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and famously, Michael Moore, uh, I guess, would he he paid for that guy's surgery, the host of Morewatch. That's Watch the climax of Sicko, yeah. Right, right, right. I wonder if that um, website is still up. I gotta check. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I used to try to own conservatives on these websites, and and that, you know this was like 2003, so I really was in that phase. You know, I was a teenager, so uh, you know I thought that you could own people by exposing logic, you know, logical fallacies and and hypocrisy and things like that. And I remember one one time in particular, thinking at these Winter Soldier hearings, which had to do with Iraq. They were a recreation of the of the famous Vietnam Winter Soldier hearings. I was posting about them and I thought like, okay, finally I've, I've, I've got them. I've got all these, you know, George Bush supporting jerks bang to right because this is the troops saying this. So they're not going to be able to disagree. <laughs> and I remember posting it and just there wasn't even a single response to it. And I, I think I posted about it multiple times and it got absolutely uh, no engagement. They just ignored it. So owning people with logic, not as effective as some people might think. But anyway, I happened to... Uh, uh, check in on one of these blogs recently and I was very sad to see that the guy who started it and owned it actually died just a few weeks ago. Um, oh no. Yeah, uh, which actually, you know, actually did, did make me quite sad, although, uh, you know, back in 2003 we certainly didn't agree on very much but a worthy worthy adversary <laughs> certainly a worthy adversary and i also you know i kind of took a look at the site uh kind of cached versions of things and i noticed that you know he actually it looks like became a, a a liberal of some kind uh some time ago uh his facebook page is a lot of stuff pushing back against uh you know trump's attempts to steal the election it's a lot of articles <laughs> one article was uh Something from The Independent. Trump jeans comments, quote, indistinguishable from Nazi rhetoric, expert on Holocaust says. So, uh, you know, his uh, his political persuasion obviously changed a lot. He, he looks more kind of resistant lib than uh, Bush era Republican, which is how I knew him. And it also looks like uh, he wrote a whole bunch of uh, Star Trek novels, which, uh, you know, is something I can definitely get behind. I used to read a lot official, of those. Official Star Trek novels or fan fiction? I mean, all Star, all Star Trek novels are kind of fan fiction in, in, in a sense. Sure. But, uh, you know, Star Trek novels, something else that I used to spend a lot of time with at age uh, 14. So I can respect that. Well, you know, an important reminder that there are many things that we human beings can connect on that are not politics. Yeah, anyway, I don't I don't want to name the guy uh, or anything. But uh, since my history with right right wing blogs, uh, you know, harkens back to kind of the uh, the spiritual home of the show, uh, which is, you know, the Bush era in the early 2000s. And the rise of the blogosphere, I did just want to mention that. And I was quite sad to hear about uh, his passing. Well, speaking of menaces, phantom and otherwise, I'd like to talk about an actual menace something that we actually have to rally our society against, a force that's creeping up on us, an enemy from within. I refer, of course, to tourists. Uh, And that's why on this episode, we're talking about Martin Scorsese's brand new seven-part Fran Lebowitz documentary, (laughs) Pretend It's a City. Yes, in the back. Hey, Fran, uh, I actually never heard of you before. That's really a good way to break the ice. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Fran Lebowitz. People frequently are infuriated by me because I'm filled with opinions. In New York, there are millions of people, and the only person looking where she's going is me. I should write a manifesto, the title of which would be Pretend It's a City. It would take one subway ride for the Dalai Lama to turn into a lunatic <laughs> raging person. Yeah, this was something that piqued Will's interest and in which he brought to my attention. I gotta say, being a Martin Scorsese completist, I don't think this one is quite up there with, you know, the Irishman. You don't think so? No. King of comedy. <laughs> well, you know, people for years have been saying that Martin Scorsese needs to have more women in his movies. And, you know, I'm holding this monkey's paw here and it seems that my wish came true. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, putting aside the, you know, the content of of uh, this documentary, which uh, we'll obviously get into, uh, this just did feel like one of those things that is very emblematic of something I've felt many times throughout the past four years, especially, where it's just a cultural artifact that I think I'm receiving on a different frequency than the people who like it. I mean, I think Donald Trump is like that. All kinds of people find Donald Trump objectionable, but I think depending on your age, like the older you are, you know, and obviously I'm, this is a massive generalization, but the older you are, I feel like you're more likely to just be offended by his affect, which has never especially bothered me. Uh, you know, another example might be the fact that certain people really find Andy Borowitz funny and every time I check in on him he seems to have gotten worse it's just like to comedy as antimatter is to matter a few weeks ago we watched that movie Coastal Elites the so-called you know first COVID movie and I told you a friend of mine watched that with their parents and and their parents were just like guffawing with laughter the entire time uh, and he was sitting there just like what the hell is this what is this supposed to be I very much felt that way watching Pretend It's a City and I wondered about Scorsese because he's a man who has managed to stay extremely cool you know it's very rare feat he's achieved managing to stay extremely cool into his old age i mean he must have made the wolf of wall street at like 70 you know insanely cool guy uh and yet he's in this movie you know he's kind of uh, the, the guy behind the camera and he's just laughing the entire time uh he's just he's he's loving the riffs he's loving you know the anecdote about how you know she she was trying to cross the street and a kid uh rode by on a bicycle controlling the bicycle uh, with his elbows while texting and eating pizza. And he almost, he almost ran her over. And kids today, they ride bikes very irresponsibly. And how is it that tens of thousands of people are not killed in New York every day when, you know, Fran Lebowitz is the only person in the whole freaking city who's watching where she's going? Uh, I did not find that particularly funny, I have to say. But uh, I, I, I assume that there's an audience... Well, in fact, I know there's an audience that, uh, that that does find this funny. This episode was was sparked, I guess, because I wrote a lengthy piece on my blog about this documentary series. I was compelled to do so because, unlike Luke, I have a long history with Fran Lebowitz. Not an intense history, but she has been a, a peripheral figure in my psyche since I was about 17 or 18. For people who don't know who Fran Lebowitz is... She is a kind of wit and raconteur from New York City who at one point was a writer. She rose to prominence uh, writing columns for Mademoiselle and Andy Warhol's Interview magazine, becoming sort of a wit about town. And she had two best-selling humor books from 1978 and 1981, Metropolitan Living and Social Studies. And, you know, I read those books in high school. I found them very funny. I read them again maybe two years ago, and I found them, you know, amusing. Pleasant books in the way that, like, Woody Allen's early humor writings are pleasant. But, you know, not exactly the, the sort of thing that seems like you'd build a very durable legacy on these. And like J.D. Salinger, 
Uh, she hasn't published anything since. Well, 1994, when she put, came out with a children's book, right? If that counts, that's her last last book, right? That's right. But the the last really substantial one was 1981. And even that, it's like a collection of humorous essays. Well, and I, I just want to say, I actually have the Fran Lebowitz reader right here. It, I believe, includes everything from her kind of two major works. It is just barely 300 pages. And, you know, in my edition, anyway, the font's pretty big. I would be surprised if it's even anywhere near 70,000 words. It's maybe 50, 60,000 words, which is not that large a, a body of work. Yes. Much of her reputation, I think, comes from going on TV panel shows like, you know, Real Time with Bill Maher or shows well, like that. Well, apparently that's been what a lot of her income has been for the past few decades is is just kind of uh, speaking engagements and, and TV appearances. Now, I saw her speak in 2018 at the Ted Rogers Hot Doc Cinema. I I described this in my blog article, but I'll tell it again here because this is kind of where I started to feel a certain skepticism about Fran Lebowitz. Anybody like this talks a lot about Trump during the Trump era. And I remember her going off on this riff about, I can't believe all these people who didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Look, I'm to the left of Hillary Clinton. I'm to the left of every Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, I still vote because it's Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. Who's more qualified? Pick one. And I remember hearing that and just thinking, when when did you stop being funny? Like, like wasn't it enough to like tell jokes? Why does everybody have to be like a third rate pundit now? Well, I mean, this, this is why this, I did not enjoy uh, sitting through it, I have to say, but it did feel very kind of topical, you know, not just kind of this week or today, but just topical in relation to the past few years, because, you know, something that we've definitely complained a lot you know, our, our version of, of Fran Leibowitz complaining about, you know, kids today on bicycles or whatever is complaining about how everyone is a pundit today. Uh, we were talking before about how there's a whole ecosystem symbiotic with Donald Trump in the Trump era. I mean, this really is it. Everybody is a journalist. Everyone's a reporter. Everyone's a pundit. People go on Twitter. Uh, and I suppose some of this is just social what social media has begotten. But You know, people will uh, like, do you you see yesterday when there was that weird thing with the State Department page uh, where it seemed to suggest that, you know, I think it it turned out that this was just a a staffer kind of uh, hacking it or something or or pranking on it, you know, and it it made it look like Donald Trump had been removed from office or something. But so many people were tweeting about that, uh, first of all, as if uh, everyone else hadn't heard about it already. And secondly, and relatedly, as if they were breaking the story, as if they were the first one to have found this. And third, like they had some kind of, you know, unique insight, you know, it's, you know my sources at NSA are, are you know, are, are coming through on the wire to tell me what, you know, what this means, you know, and I, I guess that's a bit of a, you know, uh, curmudgeonly kind of thing to, to whine about. But I do think it's an extension of a phenomenon we've seen throughout the Trump era, which, I mean, really applies to comedians, uh, especially. I mean, you were quote tweeting this thing from Seth Rogen recently. Uh, <laughs> Do you have it in front of you? Just what you want to read the listeners? This incredible riff of uh, of Seth Rogan's. Yeah, I saw this tweet yesterday. He tweeted, it's simple. These GOP leaders, quote unquote, need all caps to acknowledge they lost the election. If they don't, they're inciting violence by making people believe their democracy was stolen until they acknowledge there was no evidence of mass voter fraud. Their followers will continue to plot. Now, the reason this popped up in my feed is because Twitter highlighted it. You know, sometimes they'll highlight like cert- certain genres of Twitter. Yeah, they, they curate stuff for you now. They curate stuff. And above it, it said famous comedians. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you see famous comedians and you think, oh, OK, um, I'm, I'm ready to laugh. 
I love comedy. <laughs> I don't want to be too hard on Seth Rogen because, you know, he's just like a, you know, a fucking guy who's like upset at what's happening in the world, whatever. But yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think there's any there's no reason to pick on this specifically, but it is, it is emblematic of a much wider phenomenon, which is comedians, especially no longer feeling the need to be, you know, to be funny. <laughs> I mean, we we, t- we talk about it uh, so often, right? But there's that uh, SNL sketch from 2016, you know, right after the election, where it was just Kate McKinnon in character as Hillary Clinton singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. This is like the marquee comedy show. The, the, you know, this is their take on the election. Well, Pretend It's a City, the, the Fran Lebowitz miniseries is refreshingly absent of kind of hard politics in that we don't hear Donald Trump's name come up. However, the reason I wanted to write about it, and I think the reason why we're talking about it on the show right now is because, you know, it occurred to me watching it that Fran Lebowitz is someone who kind of developed a reputation for being a great wit and a skilled writer before she really developed a compelling worldview. And to the people who find her funny, I think she basically serves the function that like Tim Allen does to his fans. Tim Allen might not be a great example, but like Larry the Cable Guy or someone like that. So right, Larry the Cable Guy for people with B is from with, with people who went to Brandeis. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like like for liberals with BAs who live in Manhattan and work in you know marketing or journalism or middle management or whatever. She's the one to affirm your laziest biases against, you know, the the fucking tourists or the fucking cell phones or uh, um, how bad the subway smells. Uh, can you believe how bad the subway smells? You know, a sample one-liner that she has here is is like, it would take the Dalai Lama one subway ride to turn into a raging lunatic. I mean, if you find that funny, I, I mean, I, I just don't know. And and by the way, Scorsese laughs along to that as if he's a man who's been on the subway since 1972. Well, you know, it struck me how this uh, this documentary, it has no, there's no voiceover. There's no context for this. It just opens with Fran Lebowitz. Uh, there's no narration. There's no kind of putting her in, in context. There aren't, uh, at least I watched two episodes and there were no interviews uh, with other people kind of about her. It lives and dies on whatever her riff is at that moment. Right. So, it you know, the, the form of the documentary simply assumes that its own subject is interesting without feeling the need to kind of prove that or justify itself. And I think you're right that it does seem like there's an idea of wit and humor and, and insight here that precedes any actual insight or wit or humor. You know, it is a thing unto itself. I personally think it's very difficult to remain insightful or, or, or even funny if you're not producing new material. I mean, those things are an extension of, you know, you engaging with the world, reflecting on it and producing creatively in some form on it. And uh, here the equation kind of seems to be in reverse, if that makes sense. I mean, there's just an avatar for wit and insight in search of actual wit and insight rather than the wit and the insight kind of preceding the public persona. I'm not sure if this was in one of the episodes you saw. I, I don't think it was, but somewhere over the course of this three and a half hours, she has this riff on talent and how an amazing thing about talent is that it's sprinkled throughout the world and you can't buy it. You know, you can't manufacture it. 
You either have it or you don't. And I mean, I don't I don't actually agree with that because, I mean, yes, there does come a point probably where you're not going to become a great pianist if you're too late in life. And there are some people who, you know, by virtue of their circumstances or whatever, have not really developed maybe the point of view that it takes to be a great artist. You know, there is much that is a happenstance about artistic talent. But artistic talent is fundamentally about hard work to, to hone your craft, make the technical side of your craft very strong, and having a unique perspective, which which comes partly through the circumstances you were born into and the life experiences you have, and also through the way you engage with the world, you know, keeping that unique perspective sharp. And to me, her her ideas about talent seem a way for her to kind of pretend that she is still a talented writer, even though she hasn't written in 40 years. To be a talented writer, you produce writing. And she has said elsewhere, you know, that that she just respects the written word too much to produce something that's bad. And, you know, in, in this documentary somewhere, she goes off on a tangent about how, you know, the people who are really good writers don't don't like to write. And the people who are bad writers do. You know, that's a strange paradox. And I mean, it's it's fundamentally wrong. But I think it's symptomatic of of the kind of smugness and complacency she has in her art and her thought. It's like, well, I'm I'm a great writer, and even if I don't produce anything, I'm still talented. And I don't need to know about all these things. I don't really have to spend time with all these things that I hate. I just hate them, and I don't want to engage with them. To me, those two things are linked. Yeah, and I have to say, I tried to read from uh, from her earlier books in preparation for the episode. You know, and I, I know what her reputation is, and I, I can certainly, you know, there is a there is a certain talent to this, but I found myself, despite kind of making a concerted effort, really unable to kind of, you know, to gain any enjoyment or insight from it, from any of this stuff. I suppose it is witty in a certain way, but, you know, when I read things like um, her essay, Plants, The Roots of All Evil, and I'll just read uh, read from it in a second, but I don't really know what, what to do with this. Maybe it was one of those things where you had to be there, but this essay begins, The unabridged second edition of Webster's Dictionary, a volume of no small repute, gives the following as the second definition of the word plant, quote, any living thing that cannot move voluntarily has no sense organs and genuinely makes its own food. I have chosen the second definition in favor of the first because it better serves my purpose, which is to prove once and for all that except in extremely rare instances, a plant is really not the sort of thing that one ought to have around the house. That this might be accomplished in an orderly manner, I have elected to consider each aspect of the above definition individually. Let us begin at the beginning. In furnishing one's place of residence, one seeks to acquire those things which will provide the utmost in beauty, comfort, and usefulness. In the beauty department, one is invariably drawn to such fixtures as Coteau drawings, Ming vases, and Aubazin rugs. Comfort is, of course, assured by the ability to possess these objects. Usefulness is something best left to those trained in such matters. It should then be apparent that at no time does any living thing enter the picture except in the past tense. In other words, it is perfectly acceptable to surround oneself with objects composed of that which, while alive, may have been any living thing but in death, has achieved dignity by becoming a nice white linen sheet. So I don't know, you know, there the wordsmanship is pretty good. You it's know. it's pretty yeah, it's pretty good, but but it's 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 not funny. I mean, I I tried to I tried to find it funny, and I just I just couldn't. So I mean, to me, a big problem with her is, and it sounds like self parody saying it on a politics podcast, but like there's there's not an interesting politics undergirding her humor. She's kind of a free flowing misanthrope. You know, one of the things she says over and over again is how much she hates her fellow man and how she can't stand being out there with her fellow man. And, you know, it's like it's kind of funny when you hear it the first time. 
But I would actually contend that somebody who is an interesting thinker does not hate their fellow man. Like, you have to have empathy for your fellow man, fundamentally, to be an interesting thinker. Well, this, this probably isn't Fran Leibowitz's fault, but the sort of withered affect that she has in this kind of, uh, you know, free-flowing misanthropy... You know, that reminds me of too many uh, extremely online affects that, that people adopt today. And, and I don't know, certain kinds of writing and certain kinds of social media posturing. You know, some of it is almost sort of epic bacon adjacent. You know, a lot of it's the kind of stuff that you'd see, now see parried at a click hole or the onion or reductress. Like being fluent in snark or that kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of stuff. That genre of writing or blogging that feels very 2013, 2014, but you kind of still see a lot of it where it's just like expressing hatred of things that just everybody hates. You know, you, you mentioned, I guess this is going a bit further back, but you mentioned in your blog post, you know, that you joined a Facebook group in 2006 called Why I Hate Slow Walkers. Like a lot of it just kind of feels like that again maybe this isn't on her but uh the thing she does where she talks about how kind of chaotic she is and disorganized like at a certain point people with decidedly upper middle class backgrounds and kind of you know rich parents and and like comfortable careers decided to start doing that or like building that kind of thing into their public persona and i've always found it uh incredibly annoying it's like oh i'm no good with money it's like well uh your apartment says otherwise but uh yeah and i mean in fairness uh, Leibowitz claims to be from kind of a working class background and, and talks in the documentary about having worked as a cleaning lady and various other jobs early in her time in New York. But something that unites a lot of comedians, I don't want to say all comedians, because I don't want to, you know, do huge generalizations, I can't back up, but consistent in a lot of comedy is a frustration with injustice. And I'm going to call her a comedian, even though she's really a wit, quote unquote. But the definition of injustice can change from comedian to comedian. But that seems to be like a thing that structures comedy. And I'm not really sure that Fran Lebowitz has it. I mean, I think there are things that she thinks are annoying, uh, like the way that um, New York... The freaking, the freaking subway system. Yeah, but it's like in episode four, which is largely devoted to money, she talks about how one of her quirks is that uh, every week she buys a lottery ticket. And at some point, she won $1,200. And, and it was enough money that she had to go down to the lottery office. And there was a guy in front of her in line who was very adamant. You know, they said they were going to mail him his check in two weeks. And he's like, no, no, I need it now. I need it now. I need it now. And finally, he said, I, I need it to pay my rent. How am I going to pay my rent without getting this? And Leibowitz says that the lady at the counter said, well, maybe you should have thought about how you were going to pay your rent in the off chance you didn't win the lottery. And that's mildly funny, but to Leibowitz, that's a story about a fucking idiot who wasn't responsible enough to figure out a way how to pay his rent. And I hear that story, and I think that that's really sad. A guy who is depending on the lottery to pay his rent. Yeah, and it does seem like she's uh, she's taken some good political positions throughout uh, her life. She's uh, She's been critical of gentrification in New York. Of Michael Bloomberg, she once said, I object to people who are rich in politics. I don't think they should be allowed in politics. It is bad that rich people are in politics. It's bad for everybody but rich people, and rich people don't need any more help. Whenever people say, oh, he earned his money himself, I always say the same thing. No one earns a billion dollars. People earn $10 an hour. People steal a billion dollars. So that's pretty good. On homelessness in New York, she said, any New Yorker who walks down the street in this rich city, you can't even hear anything because the money's making so much noise now. And you see people in the street and not feel this is a disgrace to the country. It's a disgrace to the city. 
She, uh, you know, she obviously she identifies as a liberal Democrat. As you pointed out, she really doesn't like Donald Trump. She was hostile to Bill Clinton. And she said uh, to me, he seemed like a Republican when he signed the welfare bill. I went insane. He was a successful Republican moderate president. So that's good. But uh, in 2016, uh, she had this to say about a certain senator from Vermont. Uh, Uh-oh. She called Bernie Sanders an unbelievably irritating, narcissistic old man who took votes away from her candidate of choice, uh, Hillary Clinton. I don't know. That sounds uh, very much in keeping with the kind of, uh, you know, zeitgeist of people in, in 2016. And I suppose to some extent this last year as well who kind of did that thing of saying, well, I'm actually to the left of every Democratic nominee ever. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm actually a socialist, but uh, here's here's like what the socialist case for Hillary Clinton is. Like, here's why we can't indulge any of this getting big money out of politics or giving people health care or anything like that. Here's why here's why agitating for those things is is actually uh, extremely dangerous and and uh, and in some ways an expression of uh, privilege. Well, here's what I'll say for Fran Lebowitz and for the documentary. Uh, the seventh episode of the documentary is the best episode, which is not saying a lot, but it's the best episode because she talks largely about books and bookstores. Scorsese does a lot to set this documentary. Well, he actually doesn't do a lot. He makes some half-hearted efforts to set this documentary against the backdrop of New York using like uh, old newsreel footage or old file photos. But when she's talking about bookstores and how much she appreciates them and how so many of the great ones have been prized out of the city, it's one of the only times when her love of the city seems textured. And, you know, she talks about books that she's loved, the sorts of books she collects. She and Scorsese talk about how it pains them to have to throw a book out. And I would have liked to hear a little bit more of this from her, because I think that what she does in the rest of it is it's easy, right? It's easy to say, I hate yoga mats. It's easy to say uh, the subway smells bad and I hate the damn cyclists. But to kind of articulate the things that you love. And I mean, look, Luke, you and I on this podcast are often talking about things we hate. So I'm uh, open to charges of hypocrisy here. But we also talk about things that we love sometimes, too. And that puts you in a somewhat more vulnerable place, I think. And I wonder if one of the reasons why Leibowitz has not written very much over the last 40 years is because she doesn't want to put herself in that place. And if you're just going to be kind of the free-flowing misanthrope, it's limiting. I'm the only person who's lived in New York as long as I have who has never made a correct real estate decision. (laughs) Do people buy books here? At this kiosk, no. Do you think it's fair to bring a book into Times Square? It's not fair to the books. People want to challenge themselves. I find real life challenging enough. Does complaining change anything? Not so far. (laughs) I mean, of course, I'm a young woman. Speaking of matters of culture and uh, big streaming giants, I watched the trailer this week for a new Marvel show that's going to be on Disney+. Plus. It's called WandaVision. And I have no idea, like, what it is. I don't know what comic it's based on. Don't know anything about it. But what I do know is the trailer opens where it's like a 50s sitcom, like The Lucy Show or The Dick Van Dyke Show or something like that. Black and white. As a housewife, there's a guy, honey, I'm home, that sort of thing. Uh, Pretty soon it becomes clear that beneath the facade there's a bit of rot. So, like, there's a scene at the dinner table where the, the housewife, who I guess is Wanda, played by Elizabeth Olsen, she's harangued by uh, friends or relatives about, you know, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? When are you going to do this, 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 this? And then I'm not quite sure how this happens, but the universe ruptures itself. So some things start to be in black and white. Some things are in color. You know, it's like there's some kind of a revolution in this staid 1950s Eisenhower America. 
And in fact, this is a device that was ripped off from a movie that was once acclaimed, but is kind of forgotten now from the 90s called Pleasantville. Did you ever see Pleasantville or hear of it? Oh, yeah. I watched it on an airplane one time. Yeah. And what a piece of shit that is. It's 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 <laughs> like if they go in the TV back to an old sitcom, but whenever a character has sex, they turn into color. And that's an example of like the universe becoming liberated. And it's about ah. the, fo- the forces of liberation against. Oh, we should watch Pleasantville on the, on the podcast. Oh, yeah, the we, ab- we absolutely need to. And so basically, that's like what WandaVision, the Marvel show, is ripping off, that device of like some some sort of liberation, some change blowing in the wind is coming and rocking this Eisenhower America off its axes. And I got to say, this this pisses me off a little bit. I think because it presupposes that, well, of course, now a woman can have it all. I mean, thank God we've moved past those old times and now everyone's liberated. Now you don't even have to have a kid. Now you don't even have to have a family. And in fact, we're going to make it really easy for you because you're not going to be able to afford to have a kid. Uh, (laughs) Unlike the characters from those 50s sitcoms who were probably like garbage man or, you know, whatever, and somehow afforded a two-story house in suburbia, you know, they could have kids. But now, guess what? You're still a garbage man, but you're making minimum wage. And soon you'll be an independent contractor and you'll be liberated even further, liberated from the tyranny of wages and benefits. That's right. You won't even have a real boss. How cool is that? (laughs) Incidentally, I think I watched Pleasantville on a plane. I mean, it could be. This is one of those things where maybe my brain is just mangling the memory, but I think I may have watched it as a double bill alongside Ed TV, another movie that we should do for the podcast. Two very smart 90s satires about culture. Uh, Ed TV, I think, is one of our most brought up movies on this podcast. And yet we've we've never done it. We need to we need to bring back Ed TV. Well, you know, they just they wanted to make a movie about fame. <laughs> anyway, folks, that's the show. But I do want to make mention of the Patreon again, uh, because we don't mention it very often on the free episodes. I alluded to the fact earlier that we had our 200th episode where we took another look at the Michael Moore canon by watching Roger and Me. Some of the other recent Patreon episodes have included episodes on Barry Lyndon, the Funny or Die movie about Donald Trump's Art of the Deal starring uh, Johnny Depp as as Donald Trump. Remember? You're really selling people on the Patreon, Will. <laughs> but hey, we had a whole episode on the writing of George Orwell. We returned to Christopher Hitchens, you know, formative, formative figures for the podcast as well as episodes on Leonard Cohen, Pauline Kael, and Borat 2. As well, uh, a week or two ago, we had the first annual Michael and Us Academy Awards, where we looked back at the year 2020 and gave awards to some of our favorite and least favorite movies. Yeah, if you enjoy the free episodes, uh, check out the Patreon. It's $5 a month, or you can pay $10 a month to be elevated to these super delegates here, where you can now once a month play a role in uh, forcing us to watch something. I thought people were going to torture us in the first month, but they actually gave us Barry Lyndon to watch, which uh, is one of my favorite movies. So if you want want to cause us some pain uh, consider signing up as a super delegate and lastly something we never remember to say is whether you listen to the show on the free apps whether you found it through the jacobin feed uh, whether you're a patreon subscriber or not if you like the show please do give us a rating i personally am not in the business of rating podcasts uh, or i wasn't until i realized that you can actually really help a podcast you like by giving it a five-star rating Currently, we need some more five-star ratings. It helps with algorithms. It helps for uh, you know being shown on uh, apps and things like that. Currently, we need uh, a few good ratings to balance out uh, the ones taking umbrage with Will's vendetta against Tom Hanks. So you do us a solid by giving us a rating and uh, and maybe even leaving a review. Now watch this drive.
God, it's like she, I wrote down so many lines from it that are just like really annoying things she said, but it's like how many, like how many of them can you actually just like quote and be like, get a load of it. I mean, another one she had was the one about like, you know, being mayor of New York is a hard job. I mean, it starts early. It should be split in two and I could be the nightmare. And the first thing I would do is change the subway system. It's just like, shut up. God damn it. Um, Yeah, I've, I've got a ton of lines written down too. Hang on. Let me get one. I didn't so much write lines that she did, but like I I made notes on her discussion topics, you know, things that she brought up in each episode. Uh, And and so, you know, in one episode, it goes on and on about yoga and meditation. Cigarettes are bad for you, but marijuana is good for you, question mark. Boxing is legal, but cockfighting isn't, question mark. Oh, yeah, here's one. Your bad habits can kill you. But I had a friend who was one of the few people around my age who never smoked, never drank, was always yelling at me doing these things. Uh, Her whole life, she ate broccoli and she died of a brain tumor in her early 50s. Another one I wrote down was uh, uh, she's like, what are plants doing in Times Square? She has this thing against plants. And then uh, uh, she says, it looks like my grandmother's apartment. Uh, Scorsese finds that one pretty funny. Uh, uh, I hate money, but I love things. It's quite a, it's a real dilemma. I'm not even sure what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> What's that supposed <laughs> to mean? Like, they're actually so bad that it's hard to, like, reproduce <laughs> them in speech. I am the harbinger of bad real estate decisions. I am buy high, sell low, Leibowitz. <laughs> I am, I am the king of being 15 minutes late for meeting, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Oh, uh, what's another? What's another? Oh, line we should like make. That? We should do some. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody talked to me before I've had my coffee. 